If you have your Bible, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me to the Gospel of John and chapter 1. Gospel of John and chapter 1, we will be in verses 16 through 18 in our time together this morning. John 1, 16 through 18, we've taken a three-week break uh, from the Gospel of Luke uh, to cover John's prologue, which spans verses 1 through 18. And we're going to land that today, conclude that today, and uh, pick up Luke where we left off next week. Okay, so today, John 1, 16 through 18, and it'll be behind me in my translation on the screen as well. If you got it, say, I got it. All right, let's read this together. Holy Spirit says, indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, who is himself God and is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. Amen. This is God's word. May God write eternal truths on all of our hearts. When it comes to holiday traditions, there's perhaps no holiday quite like Christmas, don't you think? Every holiday on our calendar, of course, has traditions that go with them, but I think I'm on solid footing when I say that Christmas surpasses all of them. Tomorrow, there will be things that uh, you do that you're, are particular to, like, your family, right, um, that have risen to the level of tradition in your houses. Uh, every year, you know you will eat certain food, uh, you go to so-and-so's house, maybe play a game or watch a particular movie, and gifts are open at a certain time, maybe after some other tradition has taken place. But there are also traditions that almost everyone has or does, right? like putting up decorations. The Christmas tree is one of the things that almost everyone has in their house during this time. How many of you have a Christmas tree somewhere in the proximity of your house? Okay. And like many long-held traditions, we put up a tree, but we're not really sure why or how the Christmas tree became such a widely observed tradition, or maybe even why it must be a fir tree in particular. Well, to give the origins of the Christmas tree, we have to go all the way back to the 8th century and to an Englishman called Boniface. And Boniface was appointed a missionary to Germany by Pope Gregory II, who was also the one who gave Boniface that moniker. And Boniface was considered friendly but firm, had a gift for organization. He had great success in Germany and uh, reaching the German people with the gospel. Well, Boniface had learned through his missionary journeys of a village called Geismar and how in the winter the inhabitants of this village would gather around this huge oak tree that was called the Thunder Oak, which was dedicated to the god Thor. And they would sacrifice a child to Thor at the base of this oak to try to appease Thor and so that Thor wouldn't send bad storms in the coming year. Well, Boniface learned of this practice and obviously he thought it very barbaric as well as loathing the idolatry of it all. So Boniface wanted to destroy it, the oak, which was something that the people of Geismar told them, told him they could not be done. Not by his God, his God was not powerful enough. So off Boniface went to Geismar with some of his companions, and they showed up on Christmas Eve as the town people were gathered at the Thunder Oak, and the child sacrifice ceremony was commencing. Well, Boniface's traveling companions were understandably very nervous as they approached the village, but Boniface stilled his nerves 
And as they were getting near the tree, Boniface raised up a cross for everyone to see, and he yelled for all the townspeople to hear, here is the thunder oak, and here is the cross of Christ shall break the hammer of the false god Thor. Well, then Boniface and his friends pulled out axes and began to cut down the thunder oak, and they succeeded. And the tree fell as the people watched, and they were completely dumbfounded. They didn't think this couldn't be done. Well, the story goes that after the mighty oak was felled, there was a small fir tree that was freshly exposed from the removal of the thunder oak. And Boniface pointed at the fir tree in front of all these people, and he said this, this little tree, a young child of the forest, shall be your holy tree tonight. It is the wood of peace. It is the sign of an endless life, for its leaves are evergreen. See how it points upward to heaven. Let this be called the tree of the Christ child. Gather about it, not in the wild wood, but in your own homes. There it will shelter no deeds of blood, but loving gifts and rites of kindness. Then he shared the gospel, and in the coming year, baptized almost everyone in the village. And this is how the fir tree began to be incorporated into Christmas festivities as parents used them to illustrate to their child about the incarnation of Jesus. Well, like all good traditions, the evergreen tree in the middle of our living rooms at Christmas time is supposed to point us past itself to a deeper meaning. The tree is evergreen. It lasts, it endures even the harshest of winter weather. It's a symbol of life and vitality. It stands strong when other vegetation gives way under severe conditions. It points up to remind us of Christ's current location on the helm of the universe. And this makes the evergreen tree the most fitting tree of all for Christmas, does it not? Far from being the pagan intrusion into an otherwise sacred holiday that some claim, the evergreen tree reminds us that Christmas proclaims an eternal message that has eternal consequences, which is precisely what we're going to focus on this morning. So in other words, Christmas is not something that only causes us to look back at the first nativity in Bethlehem. Understood rightly, Christmas fills us with hope and anticipation for the eternal reign of Jesus that has already commenced. For not only was a baby born in Bethlehem, but the once and future king was born that first Christmas all those years ago. So for our time together, I want us to consider Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, and his trajectory, okay? Jesus' trajectory. So I want you to picture a V pattern, all right? The top of the V would be Jesus' pre-existence, his existence in eternity's past in the heavenlies with the Father and the Holy Spirit, what we covered in the very first sermon of this series, all right? Then, in the fullness of time, he descended, right, and he took on flesh in the incarnation. This is what we looked at last week. This is the bottom of the V. But then, after fulfilling all righteousness, after living a perfect life and dying in place of sinners, resurrecting three days later, he subsequently ascended to his rightful place as king of the universe. This is the top, other top of the V. Do you see? So our three points will follow that pattern, and I'll give them to you straight away, and they'll be behind me on the screen as well. Point one we'll call grace above. Grace above. And of course, this will focus on Christ's preexistence. Point two is the bottom part of the V, grace among, and this will cover the incarnation of Jesus. 
Point three is grace endlessly, the other top of the V, and this will cover the eternal significance of Christ's kingship. That sound good? Grace above, grace among, grace endlessly. So point number one, grace above. For this, like I said, we tread some territory that we already trod in the first message from the series, right? In fact, the first message of the series was entirely on this aspect of Jesus. But let's zoom in on the fra- this phrase in verse 16. I want you to look at your copy of God's Word. You see this phrase, grace upon grace. We have received, says John, grace upon grace from Christ's fullness. Who is the we that has received grace upon grace? And what does it mean to receive this grace? You look back at your copy of God's Word, verse 12 and 13 tells us. Who receives it? Those who become children of God. And who should obtain that status, child of God? Well, adoption by God can only come by virtue of identification with Jesus, which cannot, we saw, come about by blood, nor ethnicity, nor family heritage. Nothing can warrant adoption by Christ, by God, through Christ, except identification and allegiance in Him. And it is grace because it is something that must be Look at the language. It must be received. We have received grace upon grace. (coughs) Excuse me. It cannot be bought. It cannot be earned or inherited through family ties. It cannot be merited through good deeds, nor given on account of prestige. Grace by its very nature means that there is nothing you can do or try to be or be in order to have it. And therein lies the scandal of it all, yes? We're used to procuring things through buying or earning, right? That's how our society works. Make enough money and you can buy whatever you want, not only in material goods, but positions and power, entrance into clubs and organizations, have much money, and you can get basically whatever you want. The grace of God says that you cannot buy it. You might can buy anything else that money can buy, but money can't buy God's favor. And in fact, grace is so scandalous that it says that wealth is actually a hindrance to apprehending it. On the other hand, we also believe we can earn things through hard work and determination. We denigrate and decry ideas of good things being given for nothing, don't we? Like participation trophies and government programs, because we say, if you are to have good things, you must earn them. This is the essence of the American dream, is it not? The grace of God says that you cannot earn it. Grace in a world like ours is offensive. Meritless gifts ruin our categories of how the world should function. Now, add to that the idea of not only the gifts being meritless, but being given to those who have done wicked things. And we hardly know how to react. I mean, tomorrow... You're going to give and receive presents, yes? Who do those gifts go to? People you like and people you love. You know who you aren't going out of your way to give gifts to? Your enemies. Am I wrong? You are certainly aren't going to go out of your way to buy gifts at great cost to yourself so that your enemies have the best of presents. What, what you don't see on those goofy 
Christmas time car commercials, you know, where it plows through the snowbank, right? And you don't know who's driving it. And there's like a puffy, puppy riding shotgun. And they have these oversized bows, right? On them is a man purchasing a brand new car to give to the person who had mistreated him the most that year. The grace of God is such a scandal that it can only be received by those who were his enemies. Only those who rebelled against him. Only those who are at enmity is what the Bible says with him. And that's one of the reasons it's hard to receive because we need to admit that we are those things before we can receive him. The grace of God is this way. And it must be. For our human problem since the fall has been separation from God. And we are so rebellious and lost that if we are to reconcile with our creator, we cannot even initiate it. It must all come from God, from first to last. Grace must come from above. And John told us in verse one that Jesus was with God and was God from eternity. He was existing in eternity's past in perfect community and unity with God the Father and God the Spirit, and thus he was the dispenser of grace throughout redemption history. And again, this must be the case if man is to receive the grace that is required to be reconciled with God, because man is that fallen. What John is showing us in 16 and 17 is that the dispenser of grace for all time is Jesus. He has been the giver of grace from creation onward, and now in his incarnation, in his taking on flesh, he is thus giving grace of a different kind. Let me show you what I mean. Look again at that phrase, grace upon grace. Another way to translate this, and if you have the NIV, it's already done this work for you. Where it says grace upon grace, another way to say it is grace in place of grace, or from grace of one kind to another, which I think is what is being communicated here. Well, why? Look at the very next verse, verse 17. Verse 17 says, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. In other words, the law was grace of one kind, okay? And it was given by God from the top of Sinai to Moses, but now God has come in the flesh to give grace of a different kind, a greater grace than ever before since Jesus himself is the embodiment of grace and truth. He is grace and truth in the flesh. Now, here's the incredible truth. The God that appeared as a storm on top of Sinai and gave the grace of both rescuing the people from Egypt and giving them the law came into the world in a greater move as a baby in a manger. That's quite a different appearing, wouldn't you say? But now... How was the law grace? Now, when you and I think of law, we tend to pit it against grace. We speak of it as antithetical to grace. We think of it as a burden or a noose or a shackle. But if it was given by God, can it be characterized as such? Was the law a burden or did it become one once people turned it into a way to earn salvation or when they added to it like the Pharisees and scribes did? It must have been a grace because its purpose was not so that people could earn their way to salvation through their deeds. Rather, it was given by God so that the people would know how to relate to him. 
and how to live well in the land. Remember, God saved the people out of Egypt. How? By his grace, by his might, by his initiative. And it wasn't that he was moving them from slavery to some kind of self-propelled freedom. Rather, God saved them from one master to another himself. And so the people did not know how to worship God or serve God. They didn't know how to live as they were created. They didn't know what was best for them. And so God, in his grace, gave them the law. They were saved by grace, and they were told how to love God and neighbor well. And that, too, was grace. The illustration I like to use of thinking rightly about this was one that G.K. Chesterton used. Chesterton said, picture a plateau or an island, okay, in the sea, and it's extremely high above the water. Well, around the cliff's edge is a wall, okay, and on that, this flat plain on top of this cliff, there are children who are playing these ruckus games, and they're running, and they're laughing, and they're throwing themselves into the walls, and they're just having the best of time, going crazy on this plateau. Well, the law was like the walls on that cliff, The walls were to keep the people safe. And when thought of property, rather than being a salvation-earning bummer, it actually allowed one to live with freedom and joy. (coughs) Now, Chesterton said, you you might think if you take the walls down, the children would be free. And that's because you're thinking of the walls as restricting. But think of what would happen if the walls were taken off the cliff's edge. What would happen? What would happen is the kids no longer play and laugh. They no longer enjoy themselves. Instead, the kids huddle themselves together in the center of the plateau because they're afraid of blowing off the edge. The walls were there in order to provide a safe space in which the people of God then is now can live. And there's freedom in that. And the absence of walls isn't freedom. No walls bring fear and death. The law was like these walls. It wasn't to restrict, but for people to enjoy life as it was meant to be lived rather than falling into harmful and destruction sins. And Jesus, as the preexistent eternal God above, was the one who dispensed the law to the people through Moses as a grace to them. But what is John saying? Jesus has come in the flesh to move us from grace of one kind to another, a greater grace, a more lasting grace, a fuller grace. Look again at the phrasing of verse 17. The law was given through Moses, grace and truth what? came through Jesus Christ. John could have said grace and truth was given through Jesus, like to match what he said about Moses. But he says instead what? Grace and truth came. Grace wasn't merely given through Jesus. Grace came to us in Jesus. This leads us to our second point. Grace among. And truly, if you want to get the gravity of Christmas and the story of Christmas, and truly understand it, that you need to see that the God who was above came down to be the God who was among. Isn't this the trajectory we're given in the prologue? Look again at your text, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word what? Was God. Verse 14, and the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. That tabernacle language takes us back to Sinai again, doesn't it? For God was to be among his people in one sense, and this was grace. But now what does John say in verse 18? No one has ever seen God. You remember your Bibles? Moses wanted to see God, didn't he? 
He asked to, but God said, you'll be incinerated if you see me. But here in John 1, look at this amazing truth. We have this truth that the God of Sinai has come and taken on flesh and appeared to men. And John says, we've seen him. He was revealed to us. The God who has given grace from above has made an even greater move by coming down and being among us, around us, near us, so close, John says, we could touch him. God, then, is not like the gods we see in C.S. Lewis's novel, Till We Have Faces, who are safe on this high, secure, palatial mansion, on this mountain, away from the riffraff, you know, and uh, they tantalize humans with riddles and mockery. They refuse to speak plainly to them. John is telling us that the word who was in the beginning with God and who was God has come down and been among us. The God of Eden, who later appeared in fire and cloud and thunder and storm has condescended to become vulnerability without losing any of his divinity. Isn't that an incredible truth to consider? God is not far off. He has come near, nearer than you think. You know, in the 1960s in Queens, New York, there was an incident that shook the city for decades and some of you may remember it. A woman named Kitty Genovese was walking down the street in front of an apartment building one night, and a mugger walked up to her and started stabbing her. And she cried out for help, screaming, oh my God, he stabbed me. And when people heard her cries in the apartments that she was in front of, lights started to come on because in the middle of the night in all these windows, and that spooked the mugger, and he kind of ran off. Well, the story goes that no one actually came down to see her or help her. They merely turned their lights off and they looked out the window when they heard her screaming. It said that over 30 people saw her, but they didn't do anything. And when they didn't do anything, the mugger saw that no one was coming and he came back and he took 47 bucks from her and he killed her. Why didn't anybody help? You know, one witness, when asked, said simply, I didn't want to get involved. No one helped because to come down would mean leaving the safety of their apartments to risk being stabbed themselves. They would have to become vulnerable. They would have to risk. And they, would be, they could very well have died if they went down to help that poor, dying woman. What does Christmas tell us? It tells us that the God above became the God among so that he could be vulnerable, so that he could die. He left the heavenly places to come down and took on vulnerability of a baby so that he could grow into an adult that could be crucified in our place. John Piper said it like this, and I don't think anybody said it, could say it better. The incarnation is the preparation of nerve endings for the nails. That is what the incarnation is. The incarnation is the preparation of a brow for thorns to be pressed through. He needed to have a broad back so that there were a place for the whip. He needed to have feet so that there was a place for spikes. He needed to have a side so that there was a place for the sword to go in. He needed cheeks 
fleshy cheeks so that Judas would have a place to kiss and there would be a place for the spit to run down that the soldiers put on him. He needed a brain and a spinal column with no vinegar and no gall so that the exquisiteness of the pain could be fully felt. And if we're tracing Christ's trajectory, and we start in verse 1, and verse 1 tells us that he was there with the Father in eternity's past. There was never a time when he was not, and he was with God, which means toward God in intimate fellowship with him, and that was unbroken and eternal. Then what do we make of his cries of dereliction on the cross? Christ cried out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because our sins were placed upon his perfect shoulders, he felt for the first time ever the feeling of being forsaken of God. For the first time, he felt far from the Father, far from the one whom he had enjoyed perfect, unbroken fellowship with from before there was time. What's the worst thing that could ever happen to you? You know, in a fallen world like ours, there are many horrible things that could befall us. And we, in the scenarios we play in our mind, we can think of many terrors, financial ruin, relationships failing, being seen as a failure, losing those close to us, prison or death. But none of those are the worst thing that could ever happen to you, are they? The worst thing that can happen to you is to be forsaken by God, cursed and crucified outside the camp. That's what Jesus experienced. And the message of Christmas is that the baby born in the manger came so that he could feel the forsakenness of God on your behalf so that you never would. So now tell me sin isn't a big deal or that we aren't really that sinful or that we're actually moral people who just need a little improvement or, or that our biggest problem is that we don't try hard enough or that our biggest need is self-fulfillment or that we ought to live for ourselves with God thrown in every now and then. Tell me that after you realize what Christ has done. Does any of that wash when you realize the God who created the universe left his place in the heavenlies to come and die for his enemies? Marshall Siegel wrote, some may join in us join us in celebrating the cute baby in the domesticated manger, but only Christians find peace and joy beneath the bloody cross. Their stumbling block is our cornerstone. We were once alienated from God and hostile to him, not neutral or indifferent, but venomous, and yet Jesus laid down his life, paying for all our hideous hissing and defanging, our mutiny against him. Christmas is about the canceling and dethroning of sin. What's the message of Christmas? In light of the God who was above, who came down and became the God among, so that he could die for his enemies, none of our trite meanings for Christmas that we've come up with as a society will do the trick, will they? You know, his book, Hidden Christmas, Tim Keller says that many years ago he saw an ad in the New York Times that said, the meaning of Christmas is that love will triumph and that we will be able to put together a world of unity and peace. In other words, says Keller, We have the light within us, and so we are the ones who can dispel the darkness of the world. We can overcome poverty, injustice, violence, and evil. If we work together, we create a world of unity and peace. Can we, he said? 
He goes on, he says, despite the sincerity of the time advertisers, the message of Christmas is not that we will be able to put together a world of unity and peace. Actually, it's the exact opposite. Humanity cannot save itself. In fact, the belief that we can save ourselves, that some political system or ideology can fix human problems, has led to only more darkness. The gravity of Christmas tells us that we need to be saved. And we need to be saved by grace. And we can't do it ourselves. And we can't buy or negotiate or earn it. And that our biggest problem is that we are alienated from God because of our sins. And that the God who created the universe has come to inhabit the universe he created because it would take all of that for we rebels to be brought near. Jesus left the heavenly places so he could be forsaken of God in order that those who are far off from God could be brought near and thus not have to endure the forsakenness that he felt. You guys remember in the original Rudolph movie that came out in 1964, there was an island of misfit toys. Do you guys remember that? Who came up with that, by the way? (coughs) It's an island that's away from everyone where the toys that are deficient and broken, not good enough to be given to children at Christmas are just dumped. And they're broken, and they're on this island. They're away from everybody, so they can't bother anybody, right? Um, they're not good enough. They're left to waste away, out of sight, out of mind. Because in the original Rudolph, Santa never came back. They're just left there. No resolution. Santa, in essence, says no one would want these toys. They're different. They're broken. They're incomplete. And in the original version, as I said, there's no resolution. These misfit toys are left on this island forever. Why? Because there's something wrong with them. Surely no one would want them, right? Isn't it ironic, by the way, that Santa was this way to the toys that were different, but he did want a reindeer who was different? You know, why? Because he could benefit, right? Am I wrong here? <laughs> he could benefit from what made Rudolph different. Jesus isn't like that. Christmas tells us that we are all, without exception, broken like misfit toys, and that would be a profound bummer if the story ended that way and the way it did in the original Rudolph movie, but it doesn't because Christmas tells us that Jesus wants the broken, the hurting, the cast off, the marginalized, the unwanted. He wants those who cannot save themselves nor put themselves back together. And there's nothing you can give him to benefit him that would make him want you because he needs nothing. He lacks nothing. And if you think you are put together, if you think you aren't broken, then the Christmas message cannot be received by you. Said Kent Hughes, it's not enough to hear about Jesus. It's not enough to peek into the manger and say, oh, how nice. What a lovely scene. It gives me such good feelings. The truth is, even if Christ were born in Bethlehem a thousand times, but not within you, you would be eternally lost. The Christ who was born into the world must be born into your heart. Religious sentiment, even at Christmas time, he says, without the living Christ is a yellow brick road to darkness. Jesus did what Santa and Rudolph didn't do. He came down and he offers to put us back together now and forever. Because Jesus didn't just exist before all time. He didn't just condescend to enter the world he made in order to live a perfect life and die in the place of wayward sinners, rise three days later defeating death and sin, but he ascended back into the heavenlies to take his rightful place as king of the universe. This brings us to our third and final point. Another top part of our V, 
Point number three, grace endlessly. Says verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, who is himself God and is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. Where is Jesus today? So the present tense of verse 18 says that he is at the Father's side right now. Now, again, look back at your text. See that phrase, at the Father's side? You probably have a note in your Bible that it literally means in the bosom of the Father, which is a phrase that makes teenagers laugh, but is better, right, than, uh, and communicates more of what is going on here, because that phrase, in the bosom of the Father, is meant to communicate nearness and intimacy. So the trajectory of Jesus is what? He was with the Father, he came down to live and die and rise, and then he returned to the Father. And all of that, all of those components are necessary to complete the gospel message. The message of the gospel isn't that some man named Jesus was born and then died and then was resurrected. The message of the gospel is that pre-existent God became man without losing any of his divinity and absorbed the wrath that we deserve and then was resurrected bodily by the Holy Spirit and subsequently ascended to his place on the throne of all things where he reigns now and forever. Jesus is enthroned as we speak. And his enthronement means that the right man is at the helm of the universe and that those who would give him allegiance will be indwelt by the Holy Spirit, who is very God of very God, and can thus enjoy intimacy with the Father when? Now. And verse 16, the fullness of Jesus' grace. Christmas is telling us that born to a young, prestigeless, handmaided amongst the barn animals and wrapped in whatever rags they had on hand and laid in a stone feeding trough where animals would eat their slop out of was the once and future king. That God did not, as we've said before, send a surrogate or a hired hand or call a mere man, but came himself to become man, and as he was nursing in Bethlehem, he was still holding all things together. Why? Because you need more than anything to be reconciled to God. You need grace. You need to know God. And Jesus says, says John, is the revealer of God because he is God. And what we need is not temporary moral improvement nor tips on how to have a happy, well-adjusted life, nor motivation to accomplish all of our dreams, nor even to get insurance, fire insurance, so that we don't go to hell when we die. We need a king. And we need a king now to rule and direct our lives. (coughs) We need a king to center our lives on. We need a king we can know now and forever, and Christmas says that we can have that in Jesus. Everything was created, we read earlier, by Jesus, through Jesus, and for Jesus. All things center on him. History from the laying of the foundation of the earth onward was leading up to the manger and flows out of the cross and resurrection, pointing to the return of the king when he will finish making all things new. Jesus was king in the manger. He was king on the cross. He was the resurrected king. He is the ascended king, and he is the forever king. And whether or not men acknowledge his rules does not diminish his rule one iota. 
Isn't it something? I think Jack mentioned this several months ago that we see these royal coronations on TV and how splendid they are, which why do we care about the British monarchy, by the way? Didn't we throw like a mess of tea and wasted all that tea so that we wouldn't have to care about them? But we watch these splendid affairs, right? Intricate royal garb, crowns and jewels and carriages of pomp and circumstance, millions of dollars that are just spent, right? Poor people are watching while millions of dollars are spent on this guy to have a party. And, and these are human leaders. And they're gonna grow old, right? And they're going to die, and their graves eventually will go unvisited. And then you have the creator of the universe who owns all things, and his throne was a stone feeding trough in some backwater town. A group of nobodies for his entourage. The ruler of all things had a cross as a scepter. A borrowed tomb for a burial place. All people and all things are his subjects. But only those adopted into his family can share in his riches and fullness. And who is included in that? Surely the high and mighty and powerful, right? Actually, the least and the last. The marginalized and oppressed. The lonely and desperate. The forgotten and rejected. Those who admit they are derelict nobodies and mean it. That's what Christmas is about. The king has come and he reigns now and forever. And those who come to him with empty hands can share in his fullness. His fullness. you got to mark that up in your Bible. His fullness. Isn't that what verse 16 says? His fullness. Consider who he is. And you can receive his fullness. You bend your knee to him and you get him and everything else thrown in. You have so much grace that you'll never find the bottom. You'll have, you'll have as the captain of your life the perfect God-man who rules over every molecule in the universe. Charles Spurgeon said on this text, we're accustomed to say that if a child takes a cup full from the sea, it is just as full as before. But that is not literally true. There must be just so much the less water in the ocean. But it is literally true of Christ that when we have not only taken out cups full for our needs are too great to be satisfied with such small quantities, when we have taken out oceans full of grace and we want as much as that to carry us to heaven, there is actually as much left. Although he says we have drawn upon the treasury of his love to an extent so boundless that we cannot understand it, yet there is as much mercy and grace left in Christ as there was before, and it is a fullness still after all the saints have received it. Friend, he could be your king who dispenses grace in place of grace, who reveals the Father. Do you want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. You'll see what God is like. You want to know God personally? Go to Jesus who came to you and give your life over to him. Then you can know God. You need a king? Yes? Is he yours? Have you repented and submitted to him? Have you given him your allegiance? Is he the center of your life? Is he who, from whom you get your marching orders? Everyone has a functional king, right? Or queen, either it's you trying to rule your own life or it's Jesus, who is, let's face it, the only one capable of ruling our lives well. His statutes are better than ours. His commands better than our desires. His truth better than the world's lies. Even dying for him is better than living for anything else. Look, I love you guys, all right? I think you're swell. 
You're terrible at being your own kings and queens, okay? And I mean that in the nicest way possible. You're bad at it. And you know I know you're bad at it? Because I'm bad at it. You need, I need a better king. You know the story of Christmas, don't you? You know all the high points. You know that when word got out to King Herod that there was a king born in Bethlehem, he went in a brutal rage, didn't he? Why? Well, he didn't like the idea that there would be a king, another king to threaten his rule. How dare someone try to edge him out? He was the king, and no one would bump him off the throne, not even a baby. You know, some of you are like Herod. You would keep the throne of your life. And you don't want to share it with anyone, not even God. You're retaining rule of your life. You still are the center. You're still the commander. You're still the one who calls all the shots. And what has that gotten you, hmm? Are you closer to wholeness? Are you closer to happiness? We both know the answer to that. Some of you are like Herod in the way that he told the astrologers that he wanted to know where Jesus was so that he could pay homage to him. Remember that? Which, of course, was a lie. But some of you believe you could pay homage to Jesus with him on the fringes of your life. Which means what? You're still on the throne. While you give lift service to submission to Jesus, but you haven't really put him at the center. But a king like we see here in all we've talked about today, is he one that would share a throne? Is he one that is worthy of part-time devotion? You know, in Bethlehem today, there's a church called the Church of the Nativity. And if you were to visit this church where they say Jesus is born or nearabouts, you might encounter a wall with a door that's so low you would have to stoop to enter. You have to literally like crawl on your hands and knees. Isn't there something beautifully poetic about that? It reminds us that creator God stooped to get to us. The king of all things stooped to win people who rebelled against his throne. And if you are to approach King Jesus, you must approach him on your hands and knees and submit to him. You must stoop and you must say, you are king, I am not. You are savior, I am not. You run the show, I do not. And I want to give you my allegiance and my life. Is he worthy of anything less? But doesn't Christmas also speak to us of hope? That the Christ of Christmas is on the throne of all things and will one day make everything right? Doesn't that give you endless hope? You know, I don't know what your situation is today. I don't know what you brought into your heart and mind through the doors. I don't know if you're looking at tomorrow with dread or joy or maybe a mix of the two. But I do know to whom you should look. And I wish I had the ability to describe to you the fraction of his beauty and majesty and glory. I wish I could make it real to your heart. But that's something that only the Spirit of God can do, and only to hearts that are open to hear and see, to hearts who are tired of trying to be their own kings and queens, who have realized, like C.S. Lewis said, that if nothing on earth can satisfy my heart, it must mean I was made for another world. Christmas says that there is hope now, and there is hope forever, that the God whom existed from eternity, who tabernacled in the middle of the people of God in the wilderness, who tabernacled among us in the flesh, will tabernacle with us forever if we give our lives to him. Can I read you how the Bible ends? 
Then I saw new heaven and new earth for the first heaven and first earth passed away and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for his, her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among the people and he will dwell among them and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Christmas declares that the king has come, and he is on the throne at the right hand of the Father, and one day he will make all things new, and those who give him allegiance in this life can know his fullness now and can enjoy intimacy with God now and will one day dwell with him for endless ages. Is there better news than that? Is there a greater source of hope when life gets hard than to look to where Christ is seated now and what awaits those who are his? Let me show you another illustration that will land this thing, all right? I was thinking about all week, this scene from uh, Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King kept coming into my mind. Can you imagine? Now, this scene I'm about to explain to you is just from the books, not from the movies. But can we agree that Lord of the Rings movies are Christmas movies? Because there's elves in them, right? Anyway, there's a scene where Frodo and Sam, our heroes, were delving closer into Mordor, right, to complete their mission. And as they got closer, you know, the darkness was deepening the further they would travel. And if you know the story, right, that like all good stories, trouble lurks behind every corner for our heroes. It's constant and unrelenting, kind of like living in a fallen world, right? Well, as our travelers are weary and in need of rest, Frodo falls asleep almost immediately. You ever been so tired, you just don't matter what's going on, you just rack out. But Sam, he's too troubled, by the growing darkness. And I bet some of you have felt that too, right? That, that it, it's too dark to sleep, whether literally or metaphorically. But, you know, then Sam, he looks up to the sky, and they're peeping among the clouds in the dark of the mountains. He just saw one single bright star twinkling. And this is what, this is what Tolkien writes. He said, the beauty of it smote his heart as he looked up out of the forsaken land and hope returned to him, for like a shaft clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end, the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. His song in the tower had been defiance rather than hope, for then he was thinking of himself. Now for a moment, his own fate and even his master ceased to trouble him. He crawled back into the brambles, laid himself by Frodo's side, and putting away all fear, he cast himself into a deep, untroubled sleep. I wonder if tonight or tomorrow, if you just look at your Christmas tree and remember its origin, remember what it represents. It is evergreen, like the grace of Christ of Christmas. It points to where he rules in the heavenlies. And I wonder if you, if you just zoom in on the tiny light bulb on the tree that shine in the darkness and see them the way that Sam saw that single shining star in the darkest of nights, and let it cause you to think of the hope that is in Jesus for those that are his. What's Christmas about? You know, someone once said, if Christmas is about presents, the poor are hopeless. If Christmas is about family, the orphan is hopeless. But if it's about Christ, none are hopeless. And so it is. Would you go to him? Would you bend your knee to him? 
What would keep you from doing so? Whatever it is, it cost him infinitely more to get to you, and he thought you were worth it. Is he worth it to you? Let me close, close with this quote from Augustine, and then we'll pray. Augustine said these words in a Christmas sermon he preached about 1,500 years ago, okay? This is what he said. He said, Awake, mankind, for your sake God has become man. Awake, you who sleep, rise from the dead, and Christ will enlighten you. I tell you again, for your sake God became man. You would have suffered eternal death had he not been born in time. Never would you have been freed from sinful flesh had he not taken on himself the likeness of sinful flesh. You would have suffered everlasting unhappiness had it not been for this mercy. You would never have returned to life had he not shared your death. You would have been lost if he had not hastened to your aid. You would have perished had he not come. Let us then joyfully celebrate the coming of our salvation and redemption. Let us celebrate the festive day on which he who is the great and eternal day came from the great and endless day of eternity into our own short day of time. For what greater grace could God have made to dawn on us than to make his only son become the son of man so that the son of man might in his turn become son of God? Ask if this were merited, ask for its reason, for its justification, and see whether you will find any other answer but sheer grace.